Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. At 11.10 a.m. on Tuesday the 20th of March 1968, three inexperienced robbers forced their way into flat 35, a stylish apartment owned by wealthy stockbroker Michael O'Carroll and his pregnant wife, Janet. As an ill-conceived heist by an out-of-work dance teacher, swimming instructor, and a trainee football coach. With the robbery having backfired, they had no plan B. Expecting a payout of 20 to 30,000 pounds, a quarter of a million pounds today, they had made just 220 quid, of which they had to refund 10 pounds to their increasingly knocked fence. The stockbroker was broke. His bank account was deeply in debt. His wife's mini was unsellable. And all that was left was a four-year-old Lancia. Split in their minuscule hall. Dave paid off his rent. Mike stayed in the hotel. And Ray got the brakes of his dodgy car fixed. But now they risked lengthy prison sentences for robbery, fraud, and kidnapping. These were not hardened criminals with a master plan. They were three incompetents without a clue what to do. They'd been seen by the porters. What flat do you want? Flat 35, O'Carroll. They had earned almost nothing. They had touched almost everything. They were stuck with two hostages who knew their names and having barely slept a wink in almost 36 hours. Nothing made any sense. At 2.45 p.m., Dave Bolton got Michael O'Carroll to call his work, stating, I won't be back today. Jan's not feeling great. 
Therefore, no one would know that this couple were being held hostage for at least a day. Leaving Mike Ellis and Dave, the man with the plan, to work out what to do next, Ray Cohen left at 4 p.m. He got the Lancia. He met a girlfriend on King's Road. He watched Chelsea beat Sheffield Wednesday. And at 10 p.m., Dave suggested that Mike and I take the car to Glasgow. And as Ray and Mike drove 390 miles to sell a stolen car in Scotland, these inept hoods left behind a trail of evidence and a horrific double murder. The almost new Lancia roared up the dark-lit motorway, with Ray driving, Mike napping, and these two buddies for barely a few months, swapping over between loo breaks and hot snacks in roadside cafes. Ray struggled a bit with the gears of this Italian sports car, as when he slipped from third to fourth, they crunched. But then again, this sleek, shiny chick magnet was far superior to his rusty old death trap. This was a 1964 Lancia Flavia two-door convertible, able to do 0 to 60 in 10.8 seconds, with a top speed of 125 miles an hour. It was purchased new four years before for 1,900 pounds, 40,000 pounds today being in mint condition with leather seats. They knew they could flog off this second-hand motor for a third of its price. Maybe 600 pounds, making them 200 pounds apiece. Which wasn't great, but then it wasn't terrible, and neither was in nothing. And unlike Janet's Mini, they knew they wouldn't have a problem selling it, as having the car's logbook, the proof of ownership, and Michael's driving license. Either man could pass as its owner. In the early hours of Wednesday the 13th of March, Ray and Mike arrived in Glasgow. As before, their mission would be simple. But from the start, their inexperience and immaturity would shine through. Ray would state, We arrived and booked in at the station hotel, facing Old Buchanan Street Station. For reasons I don't know, Mike told me to book in as Mr. O'Carroll. The pettiness of these squabbling felons is hard to fathom, as without a grown adult to smack the back of their legs and growl, no, when they played up. They acted like two puppies, who'd sprung the back garden gate and were excitably running loose on a busy road, shitting everywhere and blaming the others. Upon arrival, having checked in under the names of Cohen and Ellis, their real names. Although they were technically on the run, 
Ray and Mike treated themselves to a swanky haircut and a close shave at the hotel barbers. And as they sat back, neither man would realise until later that they had dropped a large envelope containing the Lancia's logbook, on the front of which they had written the name O'Carroll. At 11.30am, Ray took the Lancia to W. Fraser, a car dealership. Mr. Fraser said he was interested in buying the car, and I left him with the particulars. Which led to another stumbling block. They didn't know whether Michael O'Carroll actually owned the car, or if he was paying it off in instalments. So over the next few hours, Ray proceeded to call the dealership on an hourly basis as they performed a HP check. As you do when you're on the run, Ray and Mike were as low-key and discreet as a drag queen drunkenly humping a Christmas tree. Via the hotel switchboard, they made numerous calls to London, with Ray even calling his mummy to tell her that he was okay. And at 6pm, as if this wasn't suspicious enough, they checked out of the rather modest station hotel and moved into the more exclusive central hotel. Because it would look better to potential car buyers if we were in a classier place. Yeah, right. Having moved hotels, leaving a wealth of fingerprints which would later be identified by the police. While the car dealer checked the legal status of the Lancia, Ray and Mike went on a little spending spree. Ray later accused Mike of splashing out. He bought a new suitcase, socks, shirts, ties, shoes, and even a three-piece suit. And although it incensed him, he would later admit, We had a few drinks at the bar, we went out to the cinema, and after that we went gambling at a casino called Chevalier. Mike lost 20 quid, and I won 50. Of course, when you're confessing your crime to the police, it's always good to brag about your blackjack skills. But conveniently for his alibi, his winnings that night exactly matched the money he had made by fencing the stolen loot. On Thursday the 14th of March, Ray and Mike went to Fraser's and were thrilled to learn that the car had passed the HP check. Only, he offered 520 quid, but we wanted over 600. Hit in a greedy impasse, having rejected his offer, they took the Lancia to another Glasgow-based car dealer, Ian Farr. But he would piss on their plans. When he dropped the bombshell, I'm no buying this. It's a dog. The gearbox is shite. And again, just like the Mini, they couldn't sell the Lancia. This nearly new but badly broken sports car was now a dead weight around their necks 
and it was drawing attention. Ray and Mike were 390 miles from home, and of the £70 they had each made from the robbery, most of it they'd already spent. And now, it was about to get worse. With a stolen car, proven to be a bit of a hot potato in Glasgow, Mike said he would take the car to Ireland. He asked, would I come? And I said, yeah, might as well. They had no contacts in the Irish city of Dublin. But having seen it in a hotel pamphlet, they thought it looked nice. So they drove 86 miles southwest to the port town of Stranra. But it was then, while sat inside of this unsellable Lancia, that Mike would drop another bombshell. On arriving at Stranra, Mike told me there was something I should know. His face was pale and his eyes were wide. He went to the boot of the car and showed me a newspaper. It was a copy of that day's Scottish Daily Express. In it was a lengthy piece featuring a photo of Mr. and Mrs. O'Carroll, alongside several words he expected, like Bayswater, Falmouth House, hostage and robbery. But one word he did not. Murder. Murder. The bodies of Mr. and Mrs. O'Carroll had been found by the police in Flat 35, having been tied up, gagged, stabbed and strangled. Fingerprints had been found and three men had been seen entering the flats. For Ray, he began to shake as he read further, knowing his life as a free man was over. Only one further fact shook him to his very core. I knew immediately that I was mixed up with two murderers. Having admitted it was he who had murdered Janet Williams, Ray was now sat in the victim's car alongside one of these slayers. And of their crimes, he was an accomplice. I was very shocked for quite a while, not knowing what to do. I decided, in my own mind, that I was going to somehow get back to London. I had to make sure that Mike didn't know this. And as he was very hungry, we found a Chinese restaurant on the seafront and I tried to eat as calmly as possible. Trying hard not to tremble, as he shoveled chopped suey with his chopsticks. Although Ray was sat just inches from Mike, it was clear that he was no more a cold-blooded killer than he was a criminal mastermind. In his own words, She had seen everything. I had to strangle her. That night, as they went aboard the ferry at Stranra, we noticed that we were getting strange looks, so we drove out of town. 
seizing the opportunity. Ray didn't flee. I asked him to take me to Prestwick Airport. I was surprised he had not minded doing this, knowing full well that I intended to return to London. Catching the last flight out of Prestwick, Mike and Ray parted ways. Ray dumped the Lancia in the airport car park, as it had been reported missing in the papers. And he caught a coach to Margate, where he laid low for the next week. Ray's return to London had left him with a deadly conundrum. Protect his cohorts by admitting only his part in the robbery, but denying any knowledge of them or their actions. Or give them up, saving himself from possibly being charged with a double murder, only to risk the two killers hunting him down and harming him or his family for breaking his silence. When he was asked why he hadn't come straight to the police, Ray would state, I needed time to sort myself out, and I was worried about Dave finding me. Typically for such a tragic tale of incompetence, Ray actually went to Scotland Yard to hand himself in. But as the desk sergeant didn't know which station was handling the case, Ray simply walked out. But fearing for his life, Ray handed his old pal, Kouras, a slip of paper. I wrote down the names Dave Bolton and Michael Ellis, the two men involved in the murder on one of his cards, and I gave it to him on the understanding that if anything happened to me, he would disclose the names to the police. On the morning of Saturday the 16th of March, Ray handed himself in at Paddington Police Station. Having been cautioned, almost everything you have heard so far has come from his confession. Barely an hour after it was dumped, a patrolling policeman found Michael O'Carroll's easily identifiable Lancia at Abbott's Inch Airport in Glasgow, containing more than 30 fingerprints of Ray Cohen and Mike Ellis. Of course, they could have torched the car, erasing any trace of themselves. But they didn't. That same day, a postman spotted a rucksack dumped outside of the John Knox Church at 34 Carton Place in Glasgow, containing documents in the name of O'Carroll and Mike Ellis's bloodstained suit. Of course, they could have dumped the bag in the Clyde River, barely 10 feet away, but they didn't. At roughly 6pm, on Wednesday the 13th of March, a phone rang again inside Flat 35. 
only no one answered. Missing business calls and personal appointments. Concerned colleagues and relatives had asked the porters, Albert Bryant and Joseph Buckley, to knock on the door. But outside the flat, it was eerily silent. Left uncollected, at the foot of the door lay a newspaper, a bottle of milk and a dozen eggs. With the heating left on, like many other flats, the hallway was reassuringly warm as if the occupants were still in. It was as they had expected. Shoes by the door, a hat on a stand, the Persian rug unruffled, and soft lights emanating from the lounge and both bedrooms at the end of the hall. But something was not right. As with no television, no radio, and no chatter, the flat was devoid of life. As the porters traversed this long, thin hallway, the only hint of disarray they saw was a broken mirror. Ahead lay the lounge. Entering this wide-open room, they saw a scene not too dissimilar to those they had witnessed many times before in their careers as porters at Falmouth House. A stylish room, dotted with seemingly the remnants of a party. Several half-empty bottles of spirits, a few discarded glasses, unwashed dinner plates with the remnants of eggs, rivita and corn on the cob, and the ashtray full. With the record player on, but the music long since finished, it wasn't wrong to assume that a party had taken place. As being a popular couple, they'd hosted a little drink soiree barely one week before. But as with all parties, not every detail made sense. As on the coffee table, a wallet had been splayed open. And on the sofa, a pair of nylon tights had been tied with hard knots and cut with something sharp. Whatever had happened, the partygoers were long gone and all that remained was a ghost of a memory. As outside of the partially open French windows, life carried on. Having followed the light to the bathroom, Joseph entered, but the pristine white room was empty and clean. With no signs of sickness or disturbance and no sighting of its owners. But it was then that, outside of the bathroom door, 
Albert spotted on the parquet floor a six-inch kitchen knife. A stainless steel blade of the highest quality, glinting bright, but with just its tip, caked in a dark red goo. With the soft light spewing from two remaining rooms, Albert and Joseph entered the opposing doors. They didn't need to enter further to understand what had happened. The silence of their lips and the wideness of their eyes told each other what was within. It was a sight unlike anything they would ever wish to see again and something they could never unsee. The investigation was headed up by Detective Chief Inspector John Bailey. With no signs of forced entry, the police initially thought the occupants had invited their killers back with them. But with Michael in a business suit and Janet dressed to stay in, this didn't seem right. With the drawers ransacked, documents laid out and personal effects clearly missing. For inexplicable reasons, these three robbers had waited inside the flat with their hostages. Unusually, there were no signs of assault in the lounge. In fact, treating them with kindness, their captors had provided drinks, meals and entertainment even given the pregnant woman extra cushions and trips to the bathroom. The relationship between the captors and the hostages was initially cordial. But something had happened. There were no witnesses to this brutal double murder, except for the killers themselves. As Ray had left to find the Lancia, and although the neighbours had heard loud noises, no one bothered to check. By 5pm, six hours into this hastily concocted heist by halfwits, Tension had begun to rise. As Dave realised that the massive payout was now little more than a pitiful £210 and an unsellable car. According to Ray, Mike said it happened when Mr O'Carroll dashed for the service bell in the flat to alert the porters. Dave put his hand round his neck, and he just collapsed. I then asked him what happened to the girl, and he said that she'd seen everything, and that he had strangled her. Later Mike would deny killing her, 
and yet her blood would be found on the suit he had dumped in Glasgow. Most likely, being desperate for money, Dave had resorted to torture. With the newlyweds separated and moved to different bedrooms. On the beds, both Janet and Michael were hogtied and gagged with ties and tights. Unable to move, and seeing nothing but the pillows below their faces. Through the opposing doors of the hall, they could only hear each other's cries, being slightly muffled by the soft music. Playing his wife's pain off against her husband's agony, the more Michael professed that he had nothing else to give, the more they hurt her, to hurt him. From barely 20 feet away, he would have heard her cries and her screams. But he could do nothing. Unable to comprehend that he had risked everything for such a pitiful sum of money, Dave grabbed a sharp carving knife from the kitchen. And with Janet, Face down on the bed, he pressed the blade into the crook of her neck between her jaw and her left ear, piercing her soft flesh to make her squeal. The tip entered the muscle just one inch deep, but as the blood poured down her neck, across her face, and pulled about her nose and mouth, Michael could hear her muffled screams. The woman he loved was terrified, choking, and in agonizing pain. And yet still, he could do nothing. Fearing that as a shrewd negotiator, this veteran stockbroker would never give up, Dave turned his torture on Michael so that Janet could hear him hurt. She had always been a nice lady, kind and decent. So maybe, if she heard his screams, the lady with the baby in her belly would find a reason to live. No longer serving a purpose, both Michael and Janet were strangled to death with the scarf. But being left face down on both beds and unable to move, they suffocated in a pool of their own blood. With their fingerprints on file, a trail of evidence leading to their doors, and Ray's confession given at Paddington Police Station, 
Dave Bolton was arrested at his flat in South Tottenham. And although he denied knowing Mr and Mrs O'Carroll, or his part in the robbery or murder, as if to mirror the incompetence of this whole robbery, Dave's own wife had brought the suit into court for him to wear, and yet it still had traces on it of his victim's blood. One week later, Mike Ellis was arrested, having spent a week at the Butlin's holiday camp in Margate. Having turned on each other, the police got statements from Ray and Mike. But with Dave acting like the big I am, and described as cocky throughout, all three were formally charged with murder. Tried at the Old Bailey, it was unsurprising that such an inept gang would plead not guilty, given the wealth of evidence against them. With the trial split into two, Ray admitted to robbery, and with his alibi being that he was at a football match during the time of the murder, he was sentenced to two years in prison. Owing to the evidence presented by Raymond Cohen, on the 22nd of July 1968, David Bolton and Michael Ellis were found guilty of all charges. Dave Bolton was sentenced to 15 years for robbery, Mike Ellis to 12 years having pleaded guilty, and both were given life sentences for murder to run concurrently. The robbery of Flat 35 should have been a simple home invasion but being a half-baked heist by a band of incompetence with a hastily concocted plan to solve an easily rectifiable problem. Being so inept and ill-equipped for such a petty crime, their idiocy had led to a brutal double murder. And yet, even before they had entered the flat, all three men were in too deep. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, it's oh, let's hope that recorded right. Oh, oh, wow, oh, 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 gotta take your little hat off. There you go, your little hat's come off. Hope that feels better. God, dear. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. If you can enjoy something like that, it's a bit, bit grim, wasn't it? But an, something different, an interesting episode, I thought. Interesting two-parter. Didn't feel like it was going to be a three-parter, hence I kept it as a two-parter. But there's loads and loads of stuff. So welcome to Extra Mile, unscripted, unedited bit, blah, blah, blah. Uh, let, I tell you what, let me go pop on my tea now. Oh, open the open the window so we can all hear the coot outside mouthing off. Um He's been outside getting a bit mouthy. Uh, my little Robin that I've kind of adopted is currently on the bow. Uh, I've relocated his nest so I can move on, which is good. There weren't any eggs in there, so that's all fine. But when I have the door shut, he sits outside the door goes, where's my dinner? Where's my dinner? Because he knows I give him treats because I'm a sap. So I think by the time you get this, it will be almost Christmas think i think this goes out the week building up to christmas day uh for me this is nowhere near christmas this isn't even the this is near the end of uh, november i think it's 24th 23rd of november 24th something like that i powered through got all my work done no no time off slogging my guts out so i'm almost done so looking forward looking forward to getting all this done finish editing this episode and then i can go and treat myself to some beers and uh a nice a nice curry treat oh there's a nice curry uh place around the corner that does really good food i treat myself last year and it was really nice so i'm going to do that this year brilliant that'll probably happen monday night monday night is curry night so i should be edited by then so that's all good and done um uh, what else is going on? This episode almost didn't happen, courtesy of Windows. My this is this is being recorded on backup laptop, uh, because p- proper laptop. Well, this is now proper laptop. Uh, proper laptop uh, suffered the blue screen of death, blue effing screen of death. Bloody bastards! Luckily, I I was halfway through writing the episode, and then I did. I did my usual thing now, which is a backup to Google Drive, even though I think Google Drive, I think, is the problem. I think that's what's going on, is what's calling all these problems is effing Google Drive. (sighs) So I lost that laptop, uh, but I'm using the backup one. So hopefully backup one is recorded nicely and I can get this edited. Then we can uh, I can be done. Way going into the archive soon 
Uh, got some new files to look at. Loads have already done already, but loads that are planning for the year ahead. Uh, hoping to start with a nice, interesting four-parter, I think, which is one I've been planning to do for ages. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, I, um, I, I was given a, a complimentary ticket to go and see Glass Onion. The uh, We're not meant to say sequel to Knives Out, but it is the sequel to Knives Out. Uh, courtesy of a freebie of Netflix. I was meant to go there the other night to go and watch that. That would have been great fun. Uh, unfortunately, I turned up at seven o'clock as planned to pick up my tickets and they'd moved me to nine o'clock. They hadn't told me. They're just like, oh, it's sold out. So they moved me to nine o'clock. Because I, I live miles away. I can't make it home. So I, I haven't watched the film yet. I By the time you've watched, you list this, I probably have. I probably have. But yeah, oh, so, so you know, dragged my ass all the way in, organised my day around this, got there. They'd moved my ticket to nine o'clock and I went through all my, my phone. I just went, I can't, I can't make it home. I can't make it home. It was really annoying, especially as it's two hour films. So it's almost three hour presentation so oh annoying annoying tea still brewing uh oh i'm gonna get my hot chocolate in a bit hot chocolate i've got i've got some lemon drizzle cake it's nice from the little bakery up, up the road very nice it's, it's it's a nice light lemon drizzle cake do you know when you sometimes you eat sponge and it can be a bit heavy they've they've done it really it's it almost feels like a diet cake in fact maybe it is uh not that i'm losing weight i'm not uh so big thank you to some patron supporters so thank you to steffi glazer philip m it's m but m philip m uh, dulcy lane and crazy Susie. so thank you steffi so thank you philip thank you dulcy and thank you crazy although i'm guessing your first name is probably Susie. um still that's still brewing so let's do some quiz questions don't forget i haven't edited this episode yet so i might balls it up and then we'll do some extra details in a bit so get ready question number one uh how much was the lancia brand new so basically how much did michael pay for the lancia when he bought it question number two what was the first hotel ray and mike checked into in glasgow question number three what names did they check in under question number four what was the name of the casino they went to in glasgow question number five why did ian farr the glasgow-based car dealer not buy the lancia question number six which irish port were they sailing to Question number seven, what type of meal did Ray and Mike have in Stranra? Question number eight, which airport did Ray fly from? That's when he was going from Scotland back to London. Which airport did he fly from? Uh, Question number nine, what was the film that Ray said he saw in the ABC Fulham Road Cinema? And question number 10, which police station did Ray initially try to hand himself into? there you go don't forget i haven't edited these episodes yet and i might balls them up i deliberately put these uh questions in and around the same area of my notes because i'm going to use some different notes so therefore hopefully i won't balls up these questions let's grab me tea well hey well hey let's see oops oh spilt the tea thank god eva's not here otherwise i would be in the shit she would be, she would be, or oh, she'd be well angry about that. She'd be well angry about that. Right. Um, 
let's dive into some extra stuff that uh we can dive this just gives us a chance to dive into some stuff that we may not already have discussed so um when they were in the car uh at stranra that's not uh, one the quiz questions so that's fine uh this was from raymond he said uh on arriving at stranra mr ellis he always calls mike mr ellis mr mr ellis mr bolton he's all mr 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 ellis told me that there was something i should know uh he went to the boot of the car and showed me a newspaper upon reading it about two murdered people in the bayswater road i knew immediately that i was mixed up with two murderers he then told me that he had to kill them because mr o'carroll tried to press the service bell uh he said that mr bolton had just put his arm around mr o'carroll's throat and he died he then said that he himself had killed mrs o'carroll he said that they were both strangled which they were um although when uh mike ellis was questioned he said the incident with the newspaper which i'm alleged to have uh, gone to the boat and shown him the headline and said i'd strangled the woman is completely untrue i know nothing about the death of these two people even though uh, his palm print was found on the newspaper and obviously Janet's... Uh, well, they can't prove it was Janet's blood, but the blood type was correct that was found on his suit. Uh, let's jump through that. There was a, there was a whole bit that, uh, in all the details about where they dumped the car and how they were trying to get the flights back. And it was really pathetic on there. It was like they, they wanted to get the 725 flight back, and it, but it was too expensive. And then there was a later one. And it's just, who cares? I just find it really, ba- really interesting that uh, Mike uh, left, dumped the car at the airport. Interesting that they didn't set fire to the car. They couldn't sell it. They didn't. So they didn't set fire to it. They just left all their evidence in there. They had no, no comprehension at all about even simple things like fingerprints. Do you know that has been, that has been being used for more than 50, 60, 70, 80 years by that point, And they hadn't got the knowledge to be able to go, do you know what? Maybe we should wipe it down. Maybe we should just get some alcohol and wipe it down. That'll do. Or set fire to the car. So it's completely burnt out. But no, they decided to leave it there with all their shit inside. And then Mike decided to treat himself by going down to Margate to the Butlins holiday camp. Well, there you go. Money well spent. Uh, let's not go into the details of what he did that night. It's kind of interesting that he... So he, uh, Raymond turns up back in London late on the 14th. And I mentioned in the episode, so he, he says, On arriving in London, I caught the Airbus direct to West London Terminal. That's not one of the quiz questions. Don't worry. I'm a, uh, On arriving at this address in South Kensington... Uh, the reason I I went there and not straight to the police was I needed to sort myself out and I was worried about the consequences of either Mr. Bolton, who was Dave, Dave or any of his associates finding me. And then he seems to go to a series of different clubs and I know that he's sticking to places that he knows where he feels comfortable and he feels safe. But if you just found out that you'd you were a, an associate... Uh, in a robbery which had later turned into a murder you would i would you go and play blackjack would you be that focused enough that you would win 50 quid on the blackjack no i don't think you would so i really don't understand what's going on there uh let's just go around this is i I took this out the episode uh before i uh while i was writing it they said at the casino i met kuras the owner of the casino i told him all about my troubles and he agreed with me that i should go to the police and that i should write down the names of the two people involved in the murder 
I did this. I wrote down the names Dave Bolton and Mike Ellis on one of his cards, and I gave it to him on the understanding that if anything happened to me, that uh, he go to the police and he would disclose the names of those involved. So this card was found. It was in his possession, and it was Exhibit KK1. Uh, KK, the initials of Kuras. Uh, uh, Kuras said Ray came in about 12.30am on the 16th. He wanted to speak to me. He was insistent. He, uh, I took him upstairs. Um, Kuras asked about the topic on the newspaper, the murder. Uh, Ray said last night we arranged to go and steal something from that place. Uh, Kuras said I, I asked who they were. He didn't tell me straight away. Um, Ray said he... Uh, Kuras said Ray took the Lancia to Scotland to sell. He then found out that his two friends had done this crime and he came back to London and said, I don't know what to do. So I told him to go to the police. Uh, I said, if you've done nothing, then you've got to go to the police or the two others will catch you. He said, if I go to the police, I'll get five to ten years. He actually got two in the end. Uh, He said the other two were demanding money from a man, but he didn't have any so they beat him up and broke his neck or something um this is what makes it really difficult with this case is that even in all the court files and all all the information that i've got we in there oddly wasn't any of the three guys that their uh criminal histories prior so normally in an episode i would put that in for you so you could kind of hear where they come from so at this point it's just hearsay so we really don't know that much uh, 16th of March, early in the morning, uh, Ray went to Paddington Police Station. He went there with his dad. Um, the poli- He'd found out that the police were looking for him, and therefore he he pretty much went straight there after the little cock-up. The car was found at the airport. Uh, I can't remember if this is a quiz question, so I'm not going to use that one. Inside the glove box, they found two keys on a ring. As mentioned, they found more than 30 sets of fingerprints in there. Many of them were clear. There were fingerprints on the ashtray, the driving, uh, the steering wheel, uh, glove box, as mentioned, on the newspaper. Newspaper, it was a whole palm print. Uh, So they pretty much hadn't cleared anything at all. It was a... And and as mentioned in the episode as well, they were they were calling their parents at home. They were calling people on the phone. They weren't using public phone boxes, which they could do. Instead, they were at the hotel and they were getting the receptionist to make the call for you. And because they're at the hotel, the receptionist has to keep a log. She keeps a log of when the call is made and who it's to and how long it's for. And therefore, she knows how to bill them. So they did it that way. Instead of utter fucking idiots instead of just going out to a phone box down the road and putting a couple of shillings in the machine and making a call that's never going to be traced utter utter massive effing idiots um rich jacobson who was a postman uh delivering mail in the gobbles area on thursday the 14th of march it's the same day that they would have dumped it he looked over the railings of the church uh that was the john knox church on carlton place he saw a rucksack containing a clothes uh, a garden hose a garden fork wrapped in brown paper we don't know why uh wrapped in string as well a motor seat backrest and a hammer we have no idea what the hell is going on in there maybe it was stuff that was already in the boot of the car or maybe being idiots maybe they stole that but why would someone with a flat and no 
greenery on their balcony why would they need gardening equipment it doesn't make any sense at all it really doesn't anyway inside the bag also was found some of michael o'carroll's business papers if you if you look at the crime scene photos you'll see that in the room uh is michael's briefcase that he brought back with me as well uh, also a car rental agreement form in michael's name we don't know what the car uh which car he was renting at that point um and in there was michael ellis's bloodstained suit which is exhibit uh 57 and 50, 58 utterly baffling because when you look at the map of that i looked at carlton place and it's right next to the river clyde it literally is the road following the river clyde why take a bag and dump it over a hedge so someone can find it why not put it in a bin or why not set fire to it or why not throw it in a river these guys are just so incompetent they really are uh in the hotel room so as, as mentioned uh fingerprints inside the lancia they went to room 477 of the uh i don't think this is a quiz question of this or was it Oh, fuck it. Anyway, uh, room 477 of the Central Hotel, they found fingerprints on the doorknob and then the dressing table mirror. And on room 50 of the Station Hotel, again on the doorknob, again on the dressing table and on a, a drinks tumbler as well. Utter, utter idiots. Um, as discovery of the bodies, uh, we don't know who called uh, Flat 35, but apparently there was lots of multiple calls. We reckon... It was probably uh, his work, uh, Michael O'Carroll's work, because he'd called. He'd don't forget he'd called the day before and said, "I'm not going to be in today because Jan's ill," meaning Janet. But he didn't turn up the next day, and uh, his senior partner at this company it was Carroll and Co. So have, therefore, it's his business, and he didn't turn up. Therefore, quite rightly, his assistant, his employees were kind of quite worried about it uh doctor turned up uh about just after seven o'clock um dr jeffrey diamond police surgeon and confirmed uh both people were dead it's a legal practice it's got to be done even though you know they're clearly dead um you've got to do it properly uh porters entered with their passkey and found a scene of horror i can't imagine seeing anything as horrible as that um Albert Bryant, uh, 58 years old, was uh, the porter. He lived in flat one of Falmouth House, which is on the basement floor. Um, and also in there was the other porter. It's it's it, in there that Joseph Buckley, they keep referring, referring to him as the little one. Because apparently, apparently he's about just a little guy. So they keep going, the little porter. Um, what else we got? What else we got? Oh, a dozen eggs outside the door, a Times newspaper, a white envelope. We don't know what kind. Uh, must have been their post. That had been delivered that morning. And as you can expect, most people would collect it before before leaving the house or, you know, for, for use of breakfast. But it was still there. Um, scene. Let's just double check that I'm still recording. I am still recording. Great. Um... That's, that looks quiet. Why does that look quiet? One, two, one, two. Looks quiet. I'll oomph that up. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, both of them were found on the bed, as mentioned, hogtied. So with their hands and feet tied behind them, um, ankles bound, wrists bound, and then those tied together. So basically they couldn't get off the bed. They couldn't stand up. They couldn't do anything. They're basically stuck. Uh, 
being effectively face down on the pillow as well. Uh, we don't know. We don't know when this happened. We don't know the timings for this. Uh, even with the um, even with the autopsy report, this was made. The time of death was really difficult to establish because the neighbour said they heard stamping around and noise, but they couldn't determine a time on it. No one went to help. Um, the room was. As mentioned, the heating was left on, so it was relatively hot, but the French windows were open. So uh, because it had happened overnight as well, there was an, for the uh, pathologist who was uh, Professor Keith Simpson, uh, he found it really difficult to determine exactly what time they died because the, the temperature was inconsistent. So um, it was estimated that they died roughly around 16 hours prior, which kind of puts it... Uh, well, 16 to 24 hours prior. So it puts it, it would be after four o'clock, which is when uh, Ray Cohen left. We don't know. Uh, we know that the guys uh, made it back to Tottenham because that's where they met uh, at 10 p.m. Uh, back at Dave's flat and they left for Glasgow at 10 p.m. So we know it must have happened between five and nine. That's about as near as they can get, which which kind of puts it in the window of uh, of when they would have died. Uh, uh, both both of them were fully clothed on the bed. Uh, both have been strangled with a scarf. It looks like they've been strangled with the same scarf. This seems to have been the last thing that happened to them. Uh, even, even though they'd been stabbed in the neck, it wasn't really a stab. It looks like it's more of a torture thing that was going on. A six-inch knife, incredibly sharp, came from the, came from the uh, kitchen itself. So again, as mentioned in part one, they hadn't brought anything with them, nothing to bind them, no bags. They hadn't bought a knife. Literally everything they used was in the flat. Police agreed there was no signs of a break-in, no forced entry. They'd left all the empty bottles there, all the bottles of spirits, the food that they'd eaten, cigarettes that had smoked, everything. Footprints, fingerprints, the whole works. Everywhere had been there. So um, initially, when you look at some of the newspapers around this, police uh, were looking at uh, Michael and Janet's kind of back history of where they'd been out, where they'd been dining and stuff like that, because they believed that they'd entertained their guests and then the guests had turned on them. But that's only because uh, of the way the scene looked, but it wasn't at all. It really wasn't. Uh, uh, room had been ransacked uh, police said it is undeniably a robbery <coughs> oh, uh, that cough is part of the quote as well uh, there was property missing uh, although at that point they really couldn't determine exactly what was missing um, because the only two people who knew what was in that room was Michael and Janet and they were both dead uh, so they could only really base it on what they knew had been sold it's uh, quite a big investigation. They, they they knew that they um they knew they tried to sell Janet's mini and that had gone badly. So they knew that 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 the uh, the Lancia was missing. So was a team of a hundred police officers were scouring the city looking for the car. Um, uh, what else have we got? Uh, fingerprints all over the room, as mentioned. Uh, on the ashtray, on the cigarette box, on photos, literally on all the documentation that was there. They really hadn't been careful with um, the things. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Oh, uh, we've done that. So I'm just going through my notes. Um, 
Professor Keith Simpson determined uh, that they had died sometime in the late evening. Uh, they'd both been face down when they were found. They were both clothed and gag- gagged. Cause of death was asphyxia due to mechanical obstruction of breathing. Uh, as it was not possible to determine the proportionate contributions made by gagging, suffocation, and in Janet's case, case constriction of the neck. Uh, both lay face down with their heads covered by pillows. So both were strangled. Janet was actually strangled a lot more than Michael was. Uh, both were technically still alive, it's believed. but uh, So he couldn't determine whether... Because their faces were down in the pillow. And it's not too sure whether their faces were forced into the pillow either. Whether they were suffocated that way and strangled. Or whether they'd suffocated on their own um, their own blood. It's Their faces are incredibly bloody around that point. Um, Janet was the last to be strangled. We know that because the white scarf was still tightly around her neck. It it wasn't knotted, but it was twisted at the back. Um, And it's believed that uh, this was all down to the kind of the the torture that was going on. Um, One detail I didn't put in the episode because it's it's hard to determine exactly what happened. So... um, when the autopsy took place at Westminster Mortuary, uh, all the details, as mentioned before, we kind of cleared that, but there was some human semen detected inside Janet's vagina, uh, which obviously in that era they were unable to group. Um, but when they examined the three attackers, they examined their suits, there were fibres from the blanket that she was lying on. It was kind of an orange tartan blanket, which are all on each of the attacker's suits. Um, so because they couldn't identify whose semen it was, it could, it could have been Michael O'Carroll's. They may have had sex the night before. We don't know. Um, or it could have been the attackers, so we don't know. So I didn't put that in the episode because it's really hard to determine exactly what happened at that point. But it could have been something they'd done. That, that could have been part of the torture. We don't know. We don't know. It could have been the way to antagonise Michael to get him to reveal where if he got a safe or something like that. Maybe that's what they were trying to do. We don't know. Or maybe they're just horrible nasty evil perverts um i think that's it uh pretty much uh found in the top drawer were some makes american express travelers checks these were found in michael's top drawer these were the same ones that kind of michael uh mike ellis had stolen and used to uh he'd, he'd cash them at west end hotels when he was on his little spree uh I threw, uh, sorry I'm just going through all of my notes and because uh, there's a lot of stuff that I, I've really, really 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 packed in a lot into this episode so uh, I don't want to give away I, I, I pretty much have told you pretty much Michael Cohen's statement I'm not going to do that one it's a long lengthy statement but it's kind of pretty much we. Uh, that's why we focus a lot on him in here because he there's a lot of details. He gave away a lot of details, and I was like, brilliant. We're going to use his perspective. So um, here we are. While in custody, uh, Mrs. Bolton, who was David Bolton's wife, brought in a suit for him to wear. This was on the 26th of March, 11.30 a.m., into Marleybone Magistrates Court. She said, can my husband change his suit? It is clean. I got it from the cleaner Saturday. It was a white shirt, a dark blue gents two-piece suit. Uh, it was examined and it had a large blood stain on the inside left sleeve, uh, having been taken to Zenith Cleaners on the High Street over in Tottenham. Um, 
So people seem to, we've had this a couple of times, people seem to make the mistake of thinking, oh, I've got, you know, I've got my suit, I'll take it to the dry cleaners, therefore it will be professionally cleaned and there'll be no stains left. But it's it's dry cleaning. It's like, if you want to get blood out, you use cold water. What you don't do is take it to a dry cleaners because it won't get it won't get the stains out. And if, if, if you've got evidence on there that links you to a murder, why would you want to keep the suit? Why not just burn the fucking thing? Oh, some people are just idiots. So yeah, she she turned up. She wanted, she didn't want him to go into court looking uh, messy. She wanted him to wear a nice suit, and therefore that was the perfect piece of evidence. Which um, the police saw it. They knew they were looking for uh, a blue gents two piece suit because Ray and Mike had both said that's what they were. That's what he was wearing. And when they saw it, they went right. We're going to take this down to the take this down to the crime lab, and uh, therefore it was identified perfectly. Uh, their committal hearing was at Marleybone Magistrates Court, uh, where they where they were committed to criminal court. Uh, the uh, Ray's defence uh, was uh, that he was at the. Uh, there, there were a, not a lot of information was given out about this in the press because there were reporting restrictions. Um, but because they needed a public appeal to kind of either prove or disprove Ray's, Ray's alibi, um, therefore these were lifted briefly. So his defence was that he went. Uh, he said that he went to see a cup replay between Chelsea and Sheffield Wednesday at Stamford Bridge on the 12th of March. This did happen. I, I, I checked the details of the football match itself. He purchased a 10 shilling ticket uh, for uh, 45 shillings from a ticket tout. He was sat in the north end. He went through gate B, row 14, and the seat. Were, he said the seat was 28 or 30 or something. Uh, the ticket was one of a pair. Uh, they appealed and uh, someone actually came forward who was the ticket tout uh, and they were able to get people to confirm that he was actually there. Uh, as mentioned in the episode, uh, they were tried at the Old Bailey. Um, Ray Cohen was given two years. That was for robbery. Dave and Michael were given 12 and 15 years respectively with a life sentence each for uh, the charge of murder. But given the fact that stretch uh given the fact that this was 1968 they would have been released 1990s maybe yeah probably 1990s with with the charges running concurrently maybe maybe even 80s you never know so uh who knows where they are i did a little search it seems like they're still alive and knocking around uh couldn't really find much on what they've done since so um Hopefully they've sorted out their lives and done done something decent with their lives rather than just being a blight on society, but who knows. Right, let's do the quiz questions. Cool. Close to almost being done, Michael. That I could taste that curry. Question number one. How much was the Lancia brand new? It was £1,900, which is uh, £40,000 today. Question number two. What was the first hotel Mike and Ray checked into? Well, that was a quiz question, wasn't it? So I did balls up. It was the Station Hotel. There you go. Merry Christmas. It's a, it's a free one. Question number three. What names did they check in under? They checked in under the names of Cohen and Ellis, which is their names. Question number four. What was the name of the casino they went to in Glasgow? It was Chevalier. 
Question number five. Why did Ian Farr, the Glasgow-based car dealer, not buy the Lancia? Uh, because the gearbox was shite. Uh, question number... The, the gearbox was not working. Question number six. Which Irish port were they sailing to? Dublin. Question number seven. What type of meal did Ray and Mike have in Stranra? It was a Chinese meal. Question number eight. What airport did Ray fly from? Uh, Prestwick. Question number nine. What film did Ray say he saw at the ABC Fulham Road Cinema? It was a film called Seventeen. I haven't done research to find out much about it, but I haven't heard of it. Question number ten. Uh, which police station did Ray initially try to hand himself into? It was Scotland Yard. As we've seen many times before in episodes, people seem to... This has caught a lot of people out because it's the most famous kind of police. It's not really a police station, but technically it is. People often go, oh, I'll hang myself in at a Scotland Yard police station, but it's not really a police station, so you can't really hand yourself in. So, uh, yeah, it's um, a bit of a mistake. It's happened a couple of times in Murder Mile. People need to to learn. But because it's the famous one, they go, oh, I'll just turn up. Oh, maybe Sherlock Holmes will arrest me. Oh, Anyway, that's that. Whoa. That's me done, folks. That's me done for the... Well, it's not really me done for the year. I've got I've got the uh, walk with me for this to do, this episode. Uh, I've got three more weekly... What are they called? Weekly, weekly inches to do for Patreon, and then I'm done. <sighs> Let's hope this, this laptop lasts. Otherwise, I'm screwed. Anyway... Oh, uh, I'll be doing... There's a Christmas special coming out. So this isn't your last one for the year. Um, And then all Murder Mile restarts. I haven't picked a date yet because I'm still working out stuff, but it'll probably be end of January, start of February. But I'll do... You'll you'll get a kind of, as usual, a little reminder saying, oh, Murder Mile comes back on this date. Uh, But I'm going to take some time off now and relax. And, uh, oh... I'm knackered. So thank you everyone for supporting uh, Murder Mile over the year. It's been very much appreciated. Thank you to everyone who's who's new to the podcast. Thank you to everyone who's stuck with it through the early days. Whoa. Um have yourself a good one. Stay safe and I'm gonna eat some lemon jizzle. Jizzle drizzle cake. Yeah. Maybe a, oh, I might go up to the shops and buy another Belgian bun. They're massive. They're as big as a head, but they're brilliant. So that's me done waffle over have a good one folks stay safe and be good lots of love bye hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.